a baby isn't. A baby isn't born with any knowledge about society, no sense whatsoever about other people. His mother exists entirely for him and his father also. It's only later that the baby realizes that his parents were invented by God for him, enlarging what he knows about the world. It's then that the baby learns, too, that the world is more than he knew before. It is both living and dead, the past and what is to come, and his dignity depends on what God thinks of him and not someone else's estimate of him. But the boy is very young, still not finely formed, still at the mercy of his elders, their standards, their social ends, their principles that want to claim him for the rest of his life. And he will begin to be bugged by the teaching of history in particular, because history seems to have been settled before he was born. That's not a trivial thing, to disinvest the boy of morale, to prepare him for the terrible, beautiful storm which is life. And this is how his elders educate him in their version of history, through their sense of history, in order to instill in him a sense of identity that cannot exist apart from them. This creates a certain kind of turmoil that will threaten all his relationships, historical and personal, and discourage him from disturbing the peace of society, the beautiful, painful, slow falling back from God. Attempting to enlarge the world without ever allowing space and time for the boy to think about God, to ask questions about God, to wonder and imagine what God has prepared for him personally, out there, in a world God has built for him, so that he is not confronted with victimhood and compromise, with only the world's standard of beauty and virtues and a middle-class life. Instead, the boy is taught by God that he was made to fight against the world and not let it get away with anything that is not godly. But the boy is not expected to always be right. But that is not relevant to God, because sometimes, maybe more often than we like to admit, what is right and what is godly are not in alignment from God's estimation. The boy does not need to prove himself to anybody, not to society, which is just a soft word used to disguise power. All he has to do is trust that he is a child of God, and God is ultimately God the Father Almighty. And so society cannot and will not win out. It will not defeat him. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 145, and I'm the Warrior Priest, Donald Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. Thank you especially to my followers on Spotify, all 615 of you. It is truly gratifying and encouraging to discover that there are over 600 of you listening to the podcast on Spotify. Because normally I assume there's about a dozen or so people that I personally know that listen to the podcast, and that's about it. So thank you so much for following, and thank you for sharing the podcast and continuing the conversation offline. That is even more encouraging to me. 
Also, if you would like to follow me on Warrior Priest Podcast at WordPress, you can do that and sign up for the email. Otherwise, you can go to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, and click the support button and buy me a cup of coffee. That, as always, is truly appreciated. And lastly, I wanted to say thank you to all of you who texted and DM'd and emailed me after last week's episode on mushrooms. Despite me sounding like a box of shattered glass, (laughs) you were, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspired, motivated, uh, turned on by the information that was presented in that episode. And so I will definitely come back around to that in the near future and talk more about both the medicinal side of the house and the psychotropic uh, side of the house and keep mushing forward with my own research and study and use of medicinal mushrooms. And I hope that if you do decide to go down that rabbit hole and you do start to take medicinal mushrooms, that they are as much of a benefit to you as they have been for me. That being said then, today on the podcast, I wanted to go even further afield, so to speak, into another area that has interested me and that I've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. And that is Stephen Pressfield, the whole reason that I started this podcast, because I read several of his books, which then caused me to say, how come no one's talking about this stuff? How come when no one's talking about the intersection of conflict and belief? How come no one is having these conversations about writing and creativity, tribalism, all the things that Pressfield touches upon in his books? And so today I want to then dive into his 2002 book entitled The War of Art because it has been profoundly influential on me and and very helpful for me and for others that I have recommended the book to. And so without further ado, as they say, I thought we would dive into 10 quotes from Pressfield's book and just kind of chew on them, meditate on them. I'll include a link to the book in the show notes. It's available on Kindle and in softcover. And like I said, especially if you are a creative person or you struggle with creativity or you just struggle with motivation. Um, And some of you, uh, after last week's episode, reached out and said that you struggle a lot with anxiety and that the mushroom episode was then, again, helpful and inspiring to you to hopefully go down that path and treat your anxiety or your depression or your addiction with the mushrooms. But I've also found the war of art to be very helpful also then in that area regarding anxiety, for example, because I know for myself, when I sit down to write a book and I'm writing my third book right now about addiction and the theology of addiction, and as I've talked about in recent episodes, I feel a great amount of responsibility in the writing of this book that I serve those who came before me, who handed their theology to me and those who handed their sobriety to me. And they gave me these tools And they shared their experience and their strength and their hope with me to keep me going forward and to keep me excited, not only about study, but also about sobriety. And as I discovered the War of Art, and I started to think more about what Pressfield has to say regarding resistance, with a capital R, the more I realized that, as Musashi says about seeing the way in everything, once we start to grasp how we are wired and how that affects our behavior we start to see how that then touches everything in our life, all of our relationships, our work, our hobbies, everything that we do, even our passions, especially our passions. Each is touched and influenced and informed 
by what is going on in our heart and in our minds. And as one famous philosopher said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think to add to that then, that old Greek philosopher, the unexamined life, I think in a certain sense, it keeps us trapped in a cage or it keeps us leashed. And that's why we end up anxious, depressed, addicted, struggling, because we're not looking at ourselves soberly, honestly, confronting ourselves and asking, why do I do this to myself all the time? Why does this keep happening? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep repeating the same behavior over and over, expecting a different result? So to go to the book then, Pressfield writes that there is a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And that secret is this. It is not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. What keeps us from sitting down is resistance. And as I said, that's from Pressfield's book, The War of Art, which was published in 2002. And it is a title that is a play on Sun Tzu's famous work, The Art of War. And if you don't have the time to listen any further than the next couple seconds, let me just boil down the entire book into one idea. In order to do work that matters, one must understand and conquer resistance. And that's resistance, like I said, with a capital R. So what is resistance then? And how do we conquer it? How do we understand it? How do we come to some sort of resolution in regards to resistance so that we can be creative, so that we can move forward, so that we can treat our anxiety or our depression or our addiction, etc.? What is this resistance that Pressfield's referring to? Well, resistance with a capital R is an internal force. It's something inside each of us that keeps us from showing us the best that we are, the best of ourselves. And again, not to other people, but to ourselves. This resistance with a capital R, it keeps us from doing our best work. It prevents us from taking risks and it stops us from making mistakes. And instead, what we end up doing is failing, failing, sometimes gloriously actually falling on our face in pursuit of something greater. That's resistance. And so what happens with this capital R resistance is that this force inside of us, this voice that lives rent-free in our head, prevents us from ever seeing the very best parts of ourselves, the parts that God has given to us and called gifts and skills and abilities. I apologize. If you hear that vibration in the back, um, my wife is at a doctor's appointment with my 12-year-old and all of the other children are at home. So we're on a family text thread. And since daddy is not there, there is a lot of communication going back and forth between my two oldest trying to figure out how to corral my two youngest. And my two youngest, they, they smell weakness and they prey upon it. So if you hear the vibrations from my phone, that's what that is. It's a family in crisis without their father. Speaking of resistance, but resistance then, for me anyways, to just address myself, resistance is that voice, like I said, that lives in my head rent-free. It's the voice of negativity, of doubt, of judgment, of condemnation. It's the voice that says to me, Whenever I even think about doing something creative, whether it's writing a poem, the poem 
that I read to you at the front end of this podcast, or to draw or paint, or to write a blog, or to podcast, or to write the book, or to get on the mats and roll freely and creatively and express my art in jujitsu or in Muay Thai, to express my love toward my wife in public or my love for my children in a way that they can really appreciate and resonate with what I'm expressing to them. That is, that I can be vulnerable and I can be weak in front of others and not fear being taken advantage of or fear being exploited for my vulnerability and my weakness and my love or even my forgiveness. Resistance is that voice that shouts at you constantly, 24-7, and says, you're not good enough. You're not smart. You're not a genius. Sure, you're creative, but you know you stole all your ideas from other people. You know you're a fraud. You know you're a plagiarist. You know it's just a matter of time before people realize who you actually are. The voice in my head (laughs) that has been there since I was a child is always telling me that I'm never going to be good enough and that the criticism of other people is valid and true. And they see me for who I truly am, and I'm the delusional one. I'm self-deceiving. I'm the liar. And so the criticisms and the put-downs and the insults and the judgments and the condemnations, even those who are strangers on the internet who DM me and tell me what a piece of garbage I am, what a fraud I am, what a coward I am, what a faker or a poser I am, even though they don't know me, and even though I know logically, rationally, that what they're saying is not true, I've earned everything that I have in life. And I receive everything that I have in life as a gift from God, ultimately. And that I know, I know because that still small voice that lives in the back of my head, that tells me I am a genius, that I am creative, that I do have something to say, that I do have something worthwhile to put out into the world, that I am capable of great beauty, great strength, great compassion, great forgiveness and mercy, great love, and that I am so strong and so compassionate and so gracious that I can allow myself to be weak and vulnerable in front of other people. And I can allow myself to show love and to express forgiveness to those even if I don't believe they deserve it. That still small voice is always there, but it's always struggling to be heard. It's that loud voice, the one that lives right in the front of my head, right behind my eyes, that screams at me all day long about what a piece of shit I am, and that I'm garbage, and that I should be ashamed of myself, and that I'm an embarrassment to myself and other people, and that the only people that really understand me and get me are my critics. That's capital R resistance, at least for me. It's that force, that power inside of each of us that says, there's nothing good about you. Your best will never be good enough. If you get a C on the test, you should be proud of that because we all know you're a D minus student on your best days. And what happens then? Your best work never even begins. You never take a risk because you're always afraid of making a mistake or being called out. And so you fail. And as I said, sometimes you fail gloriously. Sometimes I run face first into walls and it is a thing of beauty because I'm running away from something so fast that isn't even real that I don't turn around to see what's coming up in front of me, which is a big, fat, thick 
wall of resistance. And so this book, The War of Art, it's one of a very few books that I would consider must-read books, along with Extreme Ownership, The Hagakure, Bushido by Inazo Natobe. What else? There's a couple. But this is it. The War of Art is definitely in that, let's say, top five. And so here's some quotes then from The War of Art by Pressfield regarding resistance in particular. He writes, Resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. And if you take resistance at its word, you deserve everything you get. Resistance is always lying and always full of shit. And I think that's the key takeaway, is that that resistance, that force in your chest or that pressure behind your eyes, that voice that yells at you all day long, 24-7, if you listen to that resistance, if you listen to that word, then you do deserve what you get, which is lies and shit. You end up living and feeding off of those lies. You, you actually end up eating shit. It's not just a euphemism, but we end up eating our own shit because we allow resistance to dictate our path, to tell us where we're going to go or not, what we're going to say or not, what we're going to do or not. And yet no matter what we choose, we've chosen to listen to the liar. We've chosen to listen to the, that voice in our head that's completely full of shit. Second quote, the more important a call or action to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel toward pursuing it. The more important a call is, the more important the call to action is, the thing that we are about to do, the choice that we are about to make, which will actually enrich our soul. That is that it will make us better people. You're going to feel more resistance. There's going to be more push back and more sound coming out of you that says, I don't know if this is a good idea. I don't know if I should pursue this. Maybe I should think about it a little bit more. Maybe I should plan this out a little bit better. Maybe I should abandon this altogether because it's a fool's errand. I mean, I might get hurt. People might laugh at me and mock me. It might be embarrassing. What if I fail in front of other people? What if they realize that I am not who I present myself as. I think about this all the time when I'm teaching jujitsu and Muay Thai because I stand on the, the shoulders of giants and these people, some of them are still living, some I've met. And in meeting them, I've discovered that they are exactly as advertised. They are kind and gracious and giving. They are encouraging and highly motivational. And everything that they say to me makes me want to go forward and to take risks and to keep moving forward in this thing called jujitsu and in Muay Thai. But that voice, that voice, when they stop talking, that voice jumps back up and says, they don't know you. If they knew you, they wouldn't say these things to you. They'd realize you're a terrible teacher. And you may appear confident and sure of yourself on the outside when you're teaching, but we know the truth. You're an insecure, anxious fraud. You have no idea what you're doing. 
And as far as teaching jujitsu and Muay Thai, you're barely capable. You're barely qualified to do this. And there are so many other people more qualified than you. And you better hope that nobody more qualified comes in. You better hope that nobody with more experience wants to learn from you. You with eight years of experience. (laughs) What is that? Eight years. Look at him over there. He's got 15 years. Look at him over there. He's got like 20. Look at him. He spent 40 years doing this. And you're telling me that after eight years, you're qualified to stand here and teach with any authority? That's ridiculous. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should quit immediately and seek help. You should definitely find someone else to do this for you because, ugh, you're the worst. And that anxiety, that feeling of fraudulence, that you're not good enough, that eventually someone's going to come along and point out that what you're doing is completely wrong or insufficient. That lives in me every day. And it drives me almost monomaniacally forward to get better and to improve and to make sure that no matter what happens, I'm always ready. But that's a fool's dream. We are never, ever completely ready for anything. I wasn't ready to be married. I had to learn how to be married once I got married. I wasn't ready to be a father. I had to learn how to be a father after my first child was born. I wasn't ready to be a pastor. I had to learn about how to be a pastor once I was ordained. I wasn't ready to teach jujitsu or Muay Thai. I had to learn how to teach after I was told and hired to teach. And that's where the insecurity comes from. You discover after you get the job or the promotion or the new relationship comes along or whatever it may be, I'm not actually ready to do this. I'm not qualified to do it. I thought I was. I studied. I did my research. I read. I learned. I paid attention. But knowing how to do something and actually acting on that and doing it efficiently and effectively and to do it well, well enough to be satisfied with your choices and your performance, that's a whole other thing. And I tell people that all the time. It's easy to read about teaching. Go ahead and try and teach. It's easy to get up in front of people and just talk. But get up and talk effectively. Get up and lead your audience to tears and then to laughter and then to shock and then to fear and then to rejoicing. It's easy to teach. But can you make your students come back day after day, week after week, year after year? Do they desire to learn more? Do they enjoy your company and your classes? That's what takes time and investment of time because you don't come prepackaged just knowing how to do all that stuff well. And in my experience anyways, what resistance loves to feed off of is failure. Not actual failure, that comes later, but the thought of failure, the specter, the ghost, the phantasm of failure. That's why so many people never start. They quit before they ever start because they say to themselves, this is so hard. And at the first sign of failure, they quit because they don't have a positive outlook on loss, on failure. They view failure monolithically. That is, If I fail, it's bad. And they live with regret over their failures versus what I had to learn and be taught was you can fail up. 
You can actually learn a lot from your failure. Failure is what makes you a better teacher and a better parent and a better partner and a better pastor and a better person. So long as you're learning from your failures, so long as failure is a school in and of itself, then that resistance wasn't for nothing. You failed. Okay, now what? I was telling the kids this uh, this morning in philosophy class that it's one thing to fail because you chose not to act. You allowed resistance to determine your choice for you. That's one thing. And it's okay to feel frustrated about that. But did you learn anything? Can you learn anything? And can you apply this the next time you encounter resistance? When resistance says you deserve nothing, you're a fraud, you're a loser, you're full of shit. Can you recall the last time that voice in your head shouted that at you? And recall, you know, last time this happened, I chose the wrong path. So this time, I'm going to push back against that resistance. I'm going to call out that liar that lives rent-free in my head and say, you know what? Last time I listened to you, everything went wrong. Everything went badly for me. So I'm going to learn from that, and I'm not going to listen to you this time. I'm going to push through this. I don't put myself out there. And this is the thing then. At the beginning in particular of anything that you attempt, anything you choose to do or say, at the beginning of that, when you know almost nothing, if not nothing, about what you're getting yourself into, you're going to fail. You're going to experience loss. You're going to struggle. And it's going to be hard. Because it's like a muscle that you've never used before. But the more that you do it, the more that you fail, the better you will get at that thing. Because it is only through failure that we learn how to do something right. And so if you bake something and it doesn't taste right, or it's not the right consistency, or you're not satisfied with the final outcome, do it again and tweak the recipe next time. And then tweak it again and keep tweaking it maybe a hundred times, maybe a thousand times, maybe 10 to 12,000 times. Because as Malcolm Gladwell argues, it takes 10,000 hours to master anything. If you keep baking and you keep tweaking and you keep learning and you keep applying what you've learned to the next batch, eventually what you make will not only be satisfying to you, but other people that eat what you've baked will beg you to give that to them for holidays, for their birthdays, when you are invited over for it. Hey, can you bring that thing that you bake? Because I've tried and I just, I cannot come close to matching whatever it is that you do that makes your bread or your cookies or your cake so amazing. Well, what they don't see is the hundreds and thousands of recipes and hours and attempts at baking that you failed at. And as they sit there and they eat your bread or your cookies or your cake, and they shout your praises, and they make all of the, the right noises that you want people to, to do and to express when they eat your food, you're still thinking in your head, it's still not good enough. It could be better. The one that I made last week actually was better than this one. I wish you could have tasted that. That's resistance. There it is. There's the voice that lies to you. It may, in your memory, it may have been better. But this one, a week later, because you're a week better, this one's the right one. How do I know that, never having had your bread or your cookies or your cake? Because every single time you do that thing that you do, 
and you are pursuing the goal of making the perfect loaf or the perfect cookie or the perfect cake or whatever it may be, every time you do that, you're getting better. You're improving, whether you recognize it or not. If you want to see how this works at the most like extreme end, watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi. J-I-R-O Dreams of Sushi. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever watched, if not the best documentary I've ever watched. I can't watch it enough because it's about one man's pursuit of a singular goal, which is to be a master sushi chef. It's amazing. How did he get there? He confronted the resistance that stood in front of him, blocking his way, and he pushed through that resistance. And his sons grew up in his shadow. And the documentary is also about his two sons and how they choose to push through that resistance or not. It's a fascinating tale. It's kind of a parable, actually, in a lot of ways. So the more important something is to you, the more important the choice is, the more what you're about to do matters to you, the more it contributes to your soul's growth and to you becoming a better person. But resistance will always be there saying, you're never going to be good at this, so why bother? That's a lie. And as a side note then, as I like to stress, try as much as you can, as much as it is within your control, to surround yourself with people who will encourage you and motivate you and tell you not to listen to that voice. And maybe you don't express it in those blunt of terms, but to recognize, I see myself a certain way, but I trust her because she's my friend. She's my teammate. She's my coworker. I've known her for a year or 10 years or my whole life. If there's anybody who can see the real me, it's her. So if she says that about me and she praises me and she encourages me to keep going with what I'm doing, but I look at myself in the mirror and I say to myself, she doesn't really know me. Why bother? Maybe listen to her and not you because you trust that she has your best interest at heart. And if you were going the wrong way, she would tell you. She would critique you gently in love, but she wouldn't hold back. She wouldn't lie to you because she cares about you. And she wants to see you accomplish your best. So surround yourself with people like that. So next then, Pressfield writes, procrastination is the most common manifestation of resistance because it is the easiest to rationalize. We do not tell ourselves, I'm never going to write my symphony. Instead, we say, I'm going to write my symphony. I'm just going to start tomorrow. Manana, manana, manana. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it when I have time. I'll do it once I've figured out my schedule. Procrastination. Self-sabotage. Laying ambushes for ourselves. When do you write? When it's time to write. When is it time to write? When you, when it's time. When you have something to say, write it. I can't remember who it was, but there was an author who was asked, do you wait for creativity to strike or do you schedule a time every day to write? And he says, I wait for creativity, for inspiration to strike. It just so happens to hit me every morning at 9 a.m. And so for myself anyways, I set aside every Tuesday to write and to work on things outside of pastoral ministry. 
I set that side a, a time. I set that time aside. And sometimes I don't really write anything. I read a lot. I learn because I have nothing to, to say. At other times, I can't stop writing. Sometimes I'm driving to the gym in the car and I have to pull over to the side of the road because an entire poem will just pour out of me in that moment or a paragraph or two or a thought that I have to get down before it flies away. Whenever and wherever inspiration strikes, you just have to be ready. That's why I always have my phone and my notes app on my phone open. That's why I always have an iPad or a phone with me so that I can draw or paint or sketch or write whenever and wherever I'm inspired to do so. And I don't judge what I'm doing morally. I don't think to myself, well, that was worth pulling over for, or I can't believe I just wasted time and I got to wait for traffic before I can get back into traffic to get to my destination because I had to pull over and write that. Ugh. No, instead I just write it without judgment. And I trust that I'm a channel, that I'm an instrument, a conduit of something bigger than myself. And that what I need to get out is some communique, some divine message, something that has to be channeled through me because of the gifts and the skills and the abilities that I have been given by God. And you have been given different gifts and different skills and different abilities. And yet, you also are a channel, you also are an instrument of that higher reality. And what you have to say in your cooking, in your speaking, in your work, in your relationships, in your creating, it has to get out. That energy has to get out. Because I've come to believe after 51 years of life and going through the ups and downs of self-doubt and crippling myself and sabotaging myself over and over and over again, so many times I can't even count, which by the way is just more cannon fodder for resistance just more ammunition to fire off at me. The longer you live, the more regrets you have. The more you are pressured to put off till tomorrow what you can do today, which is ironic because as you get older, you have less time to screw around. So it doesn't really matter. It's not time sensitive. Whether you're 20 or 70, we all do it. But the point is that when we say manana, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow, well, we know the truth in our heart, that we have no intention whatsoever of doing it. So we're lying to ourselves, we're lying to other people. And in so doing, we actually lessen ourselves, we become a lesser version of ourselves. We starve our souls rather than feed them and enrich them. And so when we are tempted to procrastinate, don't, just do it. And do it without any moral judgment. Write, bake, express yourself. And don't judge right or wrong, good or bad, just do it. And then after you've done it, ask, okay, now what do I do with this? I think one of the greatest hang-ups, one of the great preventers of happiness in each of our lives is that we must attach a moral judgment to literally every single thing that we do or say. We have to attach a moral intent to everything rather than say, I'm just going to do this. Because I know in my gut whether what I'm doing is right or wrong. We all do. We're all wired that way. It's called natural law. It's all woven into us. We are born with a sense of right and wrong, good and evil. 
We don't have to think on it. Our gut tells us instinctively whether something is good or bad. That's why the voice in my head, anyways, lives in my frontal lobe, where reason, ration, logic is located. Second-guessing also lives there. Rationalization lives in my frontal lobe. But my gut, the longer I'm around, the more I trust my gut, because my gut has never once lied to me. But my reasoning, my second-guessing, my rationalizations, my self-justifications, oh my Lord, the number of times I've sabotaged myself and others because I listened to self-doubt and I second-guessed my own judgment, my own gut, and I rationalized away and justified not listening to my gut. Ugh. Horrible, horrible consequences for myself, for others, harmful, hurtful, deadly sometimes. And so don't say I'm going to do it tomorrow. Sit down right then, right there, and just do it. When we were living in an apartment while I was at seminary and my wife was in nursing school, we were poor. I mean, poor. And I couldn't afford drawing pads or canvases. I couldn't afford paints or brushes or anything. We weren't even able to pay our own bills. We had to get help paying our bills. And one day I was overwhelmed with the need to create. So I took grocery bags and I cut them open and I put them out on the table. And I went through the cupboards and I grabbed every spice that I could find that had a different color. And I used spices and water and I think caro syrup, whatever I could find that act as like a, a glue or, or some sort of emulsifier. I used it. And in maybe 20 minutes to 30 minutes total, I produced this piece of art that my wife framed and it still hangs on our wall. Oh, 18, 19 years later, 20 years later. It doesn't matter. You don't need the formal accoutrements, the formal tools of art, for example. Just create. And in that creating, you say to yourself, well, I don't have a canvas, so what am I going to use? I'll use this bag. Well, I don't have paint, so what do I paint with? Well, paint with your fingers. Find colors. Use smoked paprika for your reds and your oranges. Use orange juice for your watercolor, for your orange watering. Use whatever is at hand. Use black pepper, use cayenne, use cumin, use whatever you have, cinnamon. Mix them together, make different colors. Find something sticky to attach it to the paper. Just work it. Who cares about what the outcome is? Just get it out. And I did, and it hangs on my wall to this day. Now I look at it, and I'm embarrassed by it. I think to myself, that was like 20 years ago, and I did that spontaneously, and... I don't want people to see that. And what's interesting is everyone who comes to the house and sees that immediately says how impressed they are by it, which is bizarre to me because it's an abstract expressionist piece of work. And most people can't stand abstract expressionism. But the thing that I've come to appreciate and learn over the years is that your passion, that inspiration, that whatever that is that is inside of you that gets out of you, because you are a channel, you are an instrument of something bigger than yourself. That actually gets stuck on the canvas as you're working. It gets stuck into the notes on the keys or on the strings. It finds its way in between each letter of each line of the poem. It finds its way into the cookie. That's why when we eat someone's food who we love, 
it tastes different than anyone else's recipe of the same food. There are things that my grandma made that no one will ever be able to reproduce, nor should they try. And we have to accept that as we get older, that there are people that we will encounter, there will be events, there will be occurrences in our life that cannot be replicated. The best torta I've ever had was from a truck on some side street off of downtown Tijuana. And every time I go back to Tijuana to visit my family, we have to go to that torta truck if it's there. The best taco stand I've ever been to is in a village, in a valley, three and a half miles south of Ensenada. The best breakfast I've ever had was off the Central Historico in Guadalajara, Mexico, and so on and so on and so on. If we think to those moments and we say to ourselves, no one could ever reproduce that, well, resistance will say, well, then why even bother ever eating that again? You're never going to enjoy that again. Why bother getting married again? Why bother having another child? Why bother getting another job? Why bother putting yourself out there when you know it's never going to measure up to grandma or to him or her or to that moment? That's just resistance. That's just, I'll figure it out tomorrow. It's pushing back and saying, if it's not as good as that, then it's never going to be that good again. And that may be true or not. But if we simply throw up our hands and say, well, I guess that's as good as it's ever going to be, or we do it because we're afraid. We're afraid that we're going to find out, yeah, that is the best, and it passed you by, and it's never going to be better. Or why bother? We get frozen in time. We become paralyzed by the lies and the rationalizations and the self-justifications of our resistance. And so rather than say, okay, I can't bake like my grandma could bake, but I can bake. And in my baking and in my trial and error and my exercise and my practice and my production of this baked good, this cookie, for example, yeah, it'll never be like my grandma. But you know what? I was 10 when I ate those cookies. And I saw the entire universe in that cookie because I was 10. And my grandma's kitchen when I was 10 was a large part of the universe. It filled up most of the universe. And therefore, it was everything to me because I saw everything like a child. But now I'm an adult. And I see things as an adult, but I still have that childlike desire to have my grandma's kitchen be the whole universe again and have the meaning of life condensed into a cookie. But that's not real. That's the vision of a 10-year-old boy. And as a 51-year-old man, I have to recognize that, that what that boy experienced wasn't ultimately real. It was real to him in that moment. It was true. It was authentic. But it wasn't everything because I was 10 and I couldn't comprehend everything. And I couldn't comprehend that you can never comprehend everything either. But now I'm 51 and I'm a man and I've had to accept that I don't know anything. I don't understand the universe. And so most of my life is lived in faith, faith toward God, yes, but just faith, 
trusting that the sun won't go supernova, trusting that I'll keep breathing and my heart won't stop, trusting that the things that I put into my body are healthy for me and that they are improving me physically and uh, mentally, and that the things that I'm doing are worthwhile and that in the end, even after I'm dead, the things that I put into the world made the world a better place. I have to proceed on faith that that's all true because none of it can be proven in the moment. And the temptation, of course, is to look at the world through a child's eyes and demand that the world conform to a child's perspective. We see this all the time in the culture of the United States nowadays. All of these adults that are functionally children who throw temper tantrums, who demand that reality conform to their childish juvenile view of reality. And what's the consequence? Disintegration of culture, the end of society, possibly the end of civilization. And that's unfortunate. It really is, I think. Because we're so desperate for security. We're so desperate to listen to the little voice in our head, little voice, the loud voice in our head that constantly lies to us that we never detach. We never take a step back and ask, is the voice I'm listening to benefiting me? Is it benefiting others? Am I making other people's lives better? Or am I just burning the world down because it doesn't conform to my version of reality? Because I can't find my grandma's cookies, I'm going to burn the world down. Because my mom and dad aren't there to pay my bills, I'm going to destroy this city. Because life is hard and there's a lot of resistance I'm just going to accept that nothing matters and that I'm an accident and that there is no ultimate goal or meaning to my life. I'm just a scintilla of dust, as Hamlet says. That's nihilism. That's fatalism. That's hopelessness. That is a person with no dreams. And I think those are the most tragic people that you can ever meet because they have been completely possessed by resistance. And so... They're ugly, and they make the world an ugly place, and they're hopeless, so they seek to make the world a hopeless place, and they're perverted, so they seek to pervert others. That's why they execute artists, you know. Whenever a totalitarian, fascist, authoritarian regime takes over, they always kill the catechists who teach the faith and the artists who teach hope, because ultimately that's the purpose of art. It's to create hope. It is to show people a version of reality that is bigger than themselves, that is more than they've ever thought about or seen. And if you want to shut people down and demoralize them and dehumanize them and destabilize them and divide them, God, you can't let them have hope. You can't let them imagine a world without you. You can't let them be free to create and be curious and examine life. Ugh, no. Listen to the state. Obey. March in order. Do not question. Do not ask why. It is simply for you to do or die. And so Pressfield says the counterfeit innovator is a wildly self-confident person. The real one, the real innovator is scared to death. That is so important, I think, that those who are true innovators, those who are truly creative, who think outside the lines, who can't stay inside the lines, so they just wander off because... I remember the first time I read about Jackson Pollock and the criticism of Pollock. 
Pollock was a master of figure and design. He went to art school. But when he got to the edge of the canvas, he asked, well, what's outside the edges? What's, what's past where this line is at on the map? And everyone said, nothing. And he said, I think there's something. And so he sailed off the edge of his canvas. He took his canvas off the easel and put it on the floor and he walked around it. Oh, the scandal at the time. And then he started painting freely. No figure, no right angles, no geometric shapes. No, he just painted. He didn't stop to think about it. He didn't judge morally whether what he was doing was good or bad, right or wrong. He just did it. Sometimes he would do it for days on end without sleeping. And all the critics of his day said, this man is a heretic. He has wandered off the edge of the canvas. He is out there like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. His own law. Same thing happened to Carl Sandburg, the poet. When Sandburg published his first work of poems, his first book of poems, all the critics said, this is terrible poetry. This is horrible because it doesn't rhyme. He used free verse. And so all the critics panned his book. They said, this man is a terrible poet. He is so bad, he can't even rhyme words. Carl Sandburg went off the edge of the page. Pollock went off the edge of the canvas. They learned the fundamentals. They learned the rules. And when they encountered resistance, they said, ah, on the other side of this resistance, that's where the good stuff is at. So I'm going to go over there. And all of the people without the balls to go with them stood at the edge of the canvas and shouted at them as they disappeared over the horizon. And they said, there's nothing out there. And once you go, you'll never come back. You're a heretic. And they said that. And they threw those epitaphs at them, as they do with all geniuses, as they do with all the real innovators. They do that because they're afraid, <clears throat> because they don't have the balls to go there. And so they criticize and they condemn, <clears throat> excuse me, and they tear down, not just for themselves, but to encourage each other that their fear is justified and that resistance is there for a reason. And we have to pay attention to that resistance. And by the way, for all of you out there who think about following them, don't you dare. Because if you follow them, you're a heretic too. And we'll condemn you too. And nothing good will ever come of it. And so, yeah, in their lives, a lot of innovators, a lot of geniuses were never recognized. It was the children and the children's children that recognized them. Because the children grew up and looked around. Again, go back to my poetry at the beginning of this episode. And the children are the one who said, it seems kind of like you guys wrote history and tied it up in a neat little ball before I was ever born. And now you're telling me there's nothing more to learn. There are no new lands to explore, no mountains to climb. There's no new book to write, no new work of art to create. Everything that needs to be done has already been done. I don't, I don't know if that's true. And every time I ask a question, you tell me that's the wrong question. You tell me to stop asking why. You tell me to sit down and shut up and just do what you're told. But what about that guy over there? Why, why is he over there? Why did she go over there and why did you never let her come home? I'm going to go over there and check that out. 
because they're doing something different than we are. And I think that's the thing. In every generation, there's going to be a handful of people who say, but what about him? What about her? Why aren't we paying attention to that one over there? Why is no one allowed to read their books? Why am I not allowed to look at their paintings? Why can't I listen to their music? What's wrong with it? Why can't I judge for myself? Resistance, that's why. Fear. Because if we all express ourselves, if we all seek to innovate in our own creative individual way with our own gifts and skills and abilities, oh my Lord, it'll be chaos. And of course, ultimately, and this is the key, critics are worthless. They're irrelevant. Think about it. What does a critic do? Tells you whether or not to pay attention to somebody else's work. Whether it be art, music, literature, video games even. Whatever it might be. We're told, don't even bother. That's what the critic's job is. Don't go to that restaurant. Their service is terrible. The food is ugh. I would never go there again. Well, what if I like a greasy spoon? What if I like that kind of cooking? What if I like the atmosphere? In my opinion, as I get older, the more and more I come to see critics as worthless, irrelevant to society. They actually are the voice of resistance. They are the voice of procrastination. They are the gatekeepers. They are the lawyers who stand at the gate and say, thou shalt not pass or what's the password? And I think that's the thing. In order to justify themselves to themselves, they all get together. They all pay attention to what all the other ones are doing. They're paid by different corporations and different groups and organizations to give bad or good reviews to different things. There's so much going on. There's so much in the dynamics of criticism and critique. I think, personally, that the best critic is the person that you know, that you trust their opinion. Not some stranger on the internet or YouTube. Now, that's not to say that I don't go and watch gameplay videos, for example, to just judge from the gameplay videos. Does this look like a game that I'd like to play? And there are some critics of games and of music and so forth that I do like to listen to. But always, I reserve finally to make my own judgment about whether what they say is valid or not to me. But ultimately, I think the problem with critics is that they feed into resistance. They feed into that voice in our head that goes, see, told you. They're telling you the same thing I'm telling you. Versus, why not go there? Every year when I go to Mexico to visit my family, people that watch the news all day worry about me dying. And when I tell them it's actually safer where I'm going in Mexico than it is to go to downtown Minneapolis at night, they don't believe me. They scoff at me. We live in the safest country on earth. That's resistance. Resistance to the truth. Resistance to the broader reality. If you know the rules to the game and you know how the game is played, you are mostly safe. It's only those who wander in and they don't know the rules or they refuse to play by the rules. They're the ones who end up getting hurt or kidnapped or robbed or whatever it may be. But so long as you go in with a respect for the culture and you ask questions and you go in as a student then, and you're ready to be taught by people on the street 
and in the museum and in the art gallery and in the schools and in the restaurants and so on. In my experience anyways, as I've traveled the length and breadth of the Americas, I've never been in a country where when I asked a question and they saw that I was genuine in my interest and that I genuinely wanted to learn their culture and their ways, in every instance of me doing that, I have always ended up having a really good relationship with that person, even if it's brief. Especially as a quote-unquote American who claims basically two continents as my own by calling myself an American. (laughs) The expectation that when they find out that you're from the United States, the expectation is, oh great, here's somebody from the United States who's going to bring 10 feet of his country with him. He's going to be loud and boisterous. He's going to make demands. He's going to insist upon us. He's going to trample our culture and our language and our traditions and the way we do things. And so if I can enter into that and recognize their resistance to me is this preconceived idea of who I am and what I represent. If I can just push that aside and go, let me shatter that for you by asking questions, by placing myself at their feet as a student, by showing that I am weak and vulnerable, because I am. I don't know their language or their customs. I don't know their traditions. And the only way I'm going to learn is if I simply ask, what do you call this? What is this in your language? What is this? This is amazing. How do I say this? How do I get from here to there? Can you help me? I don't think I've ever not received help when I've asked for help as I've traveled. And I think that's the key. Recognize that resistance is holding you back from simply saying, can you help me? Because again, you don't want to be seen as weak. You don't want to be seen as vulnerable. You don't want to be taken advantage of. But that's going to happen regardless. If there's someone out there who sees you as a mark, and they want to take advantage of you, it really doesn't matter how you carry yourself. They're going to make an attempt. They're going to take their shot. But if you take the first step, if you put yourself out there, if you publish the book, if you put the song up, if you simply put yourself out there and say to resistance, shut up, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get comfortable being in uncomfortable situations, starting with, I'm going to put my creation out there. I'm going to put my product out there and I'm going to let people judge it on its own merits. That takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of courage. And that's why I think, as I've said before, even if you judge, again, art as an example, subjectively, I like this or I don't like this, at least appreciate the fact that he or she created this, that they put in the effort, they did the art. They got through the resistance and they produced something amazing that was not in the world a moment ago. And all it takes from you is to hit the like, to reshare it, to buy it, to say to that person, this, I appreciate this today. Thank you for this. And again, in your head, you're saying, I don't really like it. It's not something that I would buy, but I appreciate and I can see there's passion and there's effort that was put into this. And so thank you for sharing that with me, because it takes a lot for you to put that out there to put it that out there and go, I did this. And to risk having people ridicule you and mock you and laugh at you. Because let's be blunt. When we make something, when we put ourselves out there, that's that's always there in the back of our head or in the front. That voice that says, you know, once you put that up, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to mock it because they're going to be like, oh, that? Really? Oh, a poem? You're a poet now, are you? Actually, I've been writing poetry since I was old enough to write, probably since kindergarten. 
Oh, so that qualifies you as a poet. Well, no, I, I just, I write poetry because it just comes out of me. And I don't judge it one way or the other. I just, I need to get it out. Well, I think it's garbage and I think it's laughable and I'm going to mock it. I'm going to make fun of it. Okay, that is an option. That is the risk we take when we put ourselves out there. But ask yourself, are they criticizing you because they can write better poetry than you? Or are they criticizing you because they're afraid of ever putting their, themselves out there and they see that you've gone beyond the edge of the canvas and therefore, in fear, they mock you to justify to themselves why they won't follow you off the edge of the canvas. There's a lot of anxiety in that. And there can be a lot of depression in that. Because you're wrestling with things that are happening inside of you, in your heart and in your mind. And you're trying to put a picture to it or words to it. Or you're trying to make it taste a certain way or smell a certain way or feel a certain way. And like I said at the beginning, you're going to fail. We all do it. But it's simply a question of, are you failing upwards? Are you learning? Or are you failing downwards? You're simply living with regret. And then lastly, and I didn't get through all 10, I apologize. Maybe I'll come back to this next week. If you want me to do another episode on this, leave a comment, DM me, text me and I'll go through the rest of the 10. But lastly then, Pressfield writes, grandiose fantasies are a symptom of resistance. They are the sign of an amateur. The professional has learned that success like happiness comes as a byproduct of work. Success is a byproduct of the work. Happiness is a byproduct of the work. But carrying around these grandiose fantasies that just feeds the resistance because... We think to ourselves, what do I want to do with this? Well, I want to be the best baker in the world. I want to be a four-star Michelin chef. I want to have a chain of restaurants. I want to have my own cookware. I want to have a TV show. Right? Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain. God, I love that show. That is such a great show. I highly recommend it if you've never watched it before. Go watch Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. It's art, it's cooking, it's travel. Oh, it's just, it's great. That being said, sorry, I digress. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that for a second. Is that when we have these grandiose visions, sorry, I'm looking it up just to make sure that I got the reference right. But that we have these grandiose visions that say, well, it has to be this way or it has to be that way. And if it's not, then I'm not going to do it. Well, okay, but here we are again, right? Is that we look at it, the thing that we're contemplating, and yeah, parts unknown. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, DuckDuckGo. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But I used to do this all the time, and I still do it to a certain extent every once in a while if I'm not careful. The mushrooms help a lot, though, <laughs> is that... I can't just write a sermon. It has to be the best sermon that's ever been preached because there's so many sermons that I think are absolute garbage, a complete waste of both the speaker and the hearer's time. And I can't be one of those people. I've got to preach in a way that 500 years from now, people are still reading my sermons. They still want to preach my sermons. When I write poetry or hymns or music, when I write books, I ask myself, will anyone buy this in 10 years or 50 years or 500 years? 
And if we get stuck in these grandiose fantasies, because that's what they are, they're fantasies, what ends up happening, of course, is that we never start again because it's too much. We have to write the greatest novel ever written. Well, if you think about, let's see, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, Un Cien Años de Soledad, my favorite novel ever. He actually had the idea for that while he was driving to a resort with his family to take a vacation. He was on the road in his car when this thought came to him. One sentence, the first sentence of the novel. And he turned around and he said to his wife, I need you to drop me off back at home and I need you to go on vacation without me because I have to get this out. And he sat down and he wrote out the entire novel, 100 Years of Solitude. He won a a Nobel Prize for that book. (laughs) In my opinion, and in the opinions of many other people, it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest novel ever written. Because he was driving with his family in his car and a sentence came to him. And the sentence turned into a paragraph and a chapter and a book. And he put it out there and he said, I had this. It's a vision I had. It's biblical. It's apocalyptic. It's social. It's historical. It's fiction. It's not. It's everything. And it just came out of me. So I wrote it because I had to. And when I was done, here it is. And whether no one reads it or whether it's hailed as one of the greatest novels ever, that's not the point. The point is, He had to write it. He had to. And so we could fantasize about being the next Garcia Marquez, for example, or the next Pollock or the next Sandberg or whoever. Or we could just sit down and start doing it. We could worry about what our grandma would think of our cooking. Or we can just cook. We can procrastinate because we could never do it as good as he did. Or we could just do it and accept that I'm not him and I never will be. And for good, bad, or otherwise, I have to carve my own path through this world. And so I'm going to, starting today, starting right now. And I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to make my voice heard for good, bad, or otherwise. And I'm going to play for keeps, not just for fun, but for keeps. And the success and the happiness that I experience will be because I made something, not because it sells, not because anyone acknowledges it, not because the critics praise it. I'm going to walk off the edge of the canvas and I'm going to go exploring. With the seriousness of a child at play, I'm going to go exploring. And along the way, maybe I discover Peter Pan. Maybe I discover Aureliano Buendia. Maybe I discover what, where the sidewalk ends. But whatever I discover, it will be because I pushed through resistance and I didn't procrastinate. And I didn't listen to the voice that lives in my head rent-free and screams all day long, shouts at me lies and bullshit. Instead, I listened to the still small voice called hope. And I listened to hope and I dreamed And in dreaming, I received visions, and I received words, and I received sounds. And it's in that moment that I realized that I am an instrument of something greater than myself. 
that what is coming out of me is the voice of the divine. And that this is the entire reason that I was created in the first place. This is the purpose that I was created for. This is the goal of my life. This is what all of this energy that is instilled in me, all the gifts, the abilities, the skills, all of it was intended for this, this thing that I'm creating right now. There is my joy. There is my gratitude. There is my satisfaction. There is the end of my anxiety and my depression and my addiction. All the self-doubt, all the excuses, all the procrastination, it all comes to an end right there. When I listen to hope, when I accept that I am a part of something bigger than myself, and that it's not just a matter of wanting to do this, not just a matter of this being fun, but rather this is something that I need to do. And this is what I was made to do. And if I don't do it, I will become more anxious, more depressed. I will fall deeper and deeper into addiction and self-pity, shame, doubt, all of the negatives. But when I listen to hope, I can say to the voice that lives rent-free in my head, shut the fuck up and go to bed. Go get back in your cage. I don't need you and I don't need to listen to you because you have nothing to say that I need to hear. Today I choose to create. Today I choose to dream. Today I choose hope. And so that's all I've got for you today. I hope that helped. I hope that motivates you and inspires you to get out there and do what you've been thinking about doing or that you've been needing to do or yearning to do. Allow that passion to come out. Allow that energy out. Push through that resistance. Do it. Bake that cake. Say what needs to be said to him or her. Do what needs to be done. Create it. Put it out there in the world. Enrich the world. Enrich all of us with what you have to put out there. Knowing that what you're putting out there is beautiful. It's art. It's bigger than you. It's not just for you to hold on to. It's for you to give to the rest of us as a gift to enrich all of us by what you're doing. And so I thank you for listening. And I thank you for enriching my life with your feedback and with your support. And I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.